production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Tiolu Orasanya, and a senior um, and the current president of the City Club of Cleveland's Youth Forum Council. I have to say, as I give my last introduction, I'm so proud of everything this council has accomplished this past year, and I'm even more proud that we're talking about, as our one of our last forum topics, that we're talking about an issue that is so important to all of us as high school students and also to the national conversation. And with that, let's begin. On March 24th, over half a million people marched in Washington, D.C. at the March for Our Lives protest. Thousands more joined them all over the world, including right here in Cleveland. Those marching were part of a movement that has demanded comprehensive gun control legislation, a debate that has been reignited ever since 17 lives were taken in Parkland, Florida on February 14th. However, as the movement shifts from protest to policy, the legislation that has been introduced addresses school safety. According to the National Conference of State Legislatures, 200 bills or resolutions addressing the issue have been introduced in 39 states. Many of these bills address arming school personnel, including teachers, a provision that both President Trump and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos support. Florida recently passed legislation that allows some school personnel to be armed along with additional funding for mental health services and some restrictions to the purchasing of guns. The conversation has begun in our own community with many districts holding community forums on school safety. In Cleveland, the Cleveland Police Department's school resource officers participated in a safety summit identifying vulnerabilities at each of the city's schools and implementing new security measures. However, will any of these methods make schools safer? What are the largest threats to the safety of students and school employees? And what else is being done in Cleveland to ensure our schools remain havens of learning without the threat of violence or harm? Our panelists are here today to shed some light on these questions. Allow me to introduce them. Dr. Larry Goodman is the head of school at Andrews Osborne Academy in Willoughby, Ohio, and has over 20 years of experience in education, including head of school at the Lillian and Betty Ratner School and the director of strategic programming at Laurel School for Girls. He has also been on the board of the Metro Health Foundation in Cleveland, Ohio. A native of Baltimore, Maryland, Dr. Goodman holds doctorate and master's degrees in English language and literature from the University of Chicago and a bachelor's degree in English from Bucknell University where he graduated magna cum laude. Kevin LaMonica is currently a junior at Shaker Heights High School. Along with Cleveland area students, he helped to organize the Cleveland March for Our Lives on March 24th, gathering thousands of people from Northeast Ohio, calling for significant gun control measures in response to the February Parkland shooting that took the lives of 17 people. Kenneth S. Trump is the president of National School Safety and Security Services, a national firm specializing in K-12 school security, emergency preparedness, litigation consulting, and related school safety training and consulting. Excuse me. Ken began his work in school safety as an officer, investigator, and youth gang unit supervisor for the Cleveland City School Safety Division and has over 30 years of experience working in school safety. And Dr. Renee Willis has served as superintendent of Richmond Heights, Hi Richmond Heights School since 2014, implementing the New Day Plan in early 2015 focused on revitalizing the school district. 
She formerly served as CMST Chief Strategy Officer, Chief of Transformation, Deputy Chief of Pre-K through Eight Education, and Cleveland Heights University Heights High School Principal. Here to guide this important discussion today is Senior and Youth Forum Council Member Madeline Conley. With that, Maddie, I turn the forum over to you. Hello, <coughs> excuse me. Hello, everyone. Um, as she mentioned, my name is Madeline Conley. I'd like to thank all of you for being here, and of course, our panelists for being here. Um, so let's just get right into it. As we all know, Parkland was not the first uh, school mass shooting. What do you think has made the impact different this time? And we can start with uh, Renee Williams, if that's all right with you. Thank you. And good afternoon. And first of all, let me honor you as students here to talk about this topic as it affects us all. Um, sure, Parkland was not the first. In fact, to bring it closer to home, I, I vividly remember our first shooting here in Cleveland, 2007, where a student at Success Tech shot approximately five people and then took his own life. And it was at that time that I was a chief and actually on the scene. These are the things that change your life forever. There's not one course that Dr. Goodman or myself could have ever taken in our quest for a PhD to prepare us for that. So my, um, my opinion about what makes this different is that it is now the students, you, that have risen up to take charge of this from a policy standpoint. We march, we riot, we protest, but it is the policy and the changes of those policies that will make a true difference. Uh, my perspective, which I'll sure, I'm sure I'll get to share later, is one from a holistic, humanistic approach, because also no matter what the policies may be, we are humans and it is about our interaction with each other, our relationships, and the things that truly matter that will make a true indent. So Parkland was not the first, but because of the student voice, I think it is gaining the most traction that we've seen for errors. To grow on that, uh, expand on that a little bit. Um, it is students now who are organizing around the country. Um, and I think one thing that makes us different is we have an unbelievable amount of information at our fingertips. Um, I think so many times young people are kind of characterized as they ha always have their faces in their phones, they don't care about anything in the world, but in reality, this generation is the most educated generation this world has ever seen because we have the resources to educate ourselves and to communicate with people around the globe about things that we care about. We have things like Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat that allow us to communicate with people in California who are doing the same things that we are. Um, so the fact that it's students who are doing this, I think, I definitely agree, it's, that's the reason that I believe that a real change will be made. I, would, I can just say, first of all, let me answer the question that everyone wants to know. No, no relation. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually the one when your last name's Trump, it changes your life, uh, regardless of your political position in life. So let's get that one on, on the table, uh, regardless of your political uh, perspective. Uh, I've been in the field for more than 30 years. I started young, really, in high school. Uh, in Cleveland City Schools when the desegregation order took place and the Division of Safety and Security was created and I used to hang out with the uh, security officer rather than the study hall and learned a lot about that and went back to, to work at the school from uh, where I graduated while I was working on my bachelor's and master's and now 30 years later working on my doctorate at Johns Hopkins. Um, I'm still in school safety field. I've taken it a little bit differently into having worked for school districts for uh, about a dozen years to working as in my own business uh, and doing security assessments, emergency planning, professional development training, and expert witness work. 
uh, more in recent years. And I've lived and worked through the Columbine era, which will be 20 years next year, for which many people in this room were not alive at the time. Many uh, people in education community were not in the positions that they were in, in superintendencies, heads of school, uh, principals, uh, school resource officers, whatever that, uh, teaching. Um, and moved through the Sandy Hook era and now through, through the Parkland. So I've seen that. I've seen us repeat some cycles. Uh, a lot of the best practices that were established after Columbine through a lot of deliberation, conversation, focus on well, what we say is a balance between uh, the human aspect of school safety, the people side of school safety versus the hardware. Uh, personally and, and philosophically, we're more from the people side of things as, as well. Uh, what I've seen in analyzing cases, including doing expert witness work on the Sandy Hook case and, and many others that occur in schools, uh, crimes and violence from active shooters to other types of assaults and abductions, is that those cases involve allegations of failures of people and procedures, exactly what Dr. Wills is saying. And we have to focus on balance and the people side. I do think with what's different now is certainly the student end of things. Um, I think that parents are better educated, just as, as, as you're saying, Kevin's saying, that you know, the information's out there and the media's better educated and they know what questions to ask to hold people accountable, as do the students and the parents. Uh, the question is, will we complete, do another cycle of do the same thing over again, have the same conversations and go down the same rabbit holes, or will we uh, actually do something that's, that's different? And I do think it's in, in your hands and I will say, while certainly the demonstrations are there, uh, I hope to see young people go register to vote as well because it will affect policy and it does affect uh, implementation and action on things to take that protest to the next level. Let me say that a little bit more bluntly. What the uh, grown-ups who are advocating on the other side of things like uh, gun ownership and uh, limiting access to guns, what they're counting on is it's the same thing that has happened in every single election in our history will happen again. And that's that people under the age of 25 won't vote. If you do, this is a slam dunk. 70-some percent of the people in the country favor that which you and others have advocated for, which is some common sense form of gun control. I don't think it's the answer to the problem. I think it's one of the components of how we should respond today. But it's not just I, it would be nice if you did vote. It is what good is education if it doesn't lead to action? So you're more educated. You've got access to Twitter and you can Snapchat with your friend in California. If it doesn't ha get you and your friends pulling levers, well, we don't pull levers anymore, but you know, voting in November for a candidate that represents what you believe and importantly against the candidate who will go on the record as saying, I'm not going to do that. If it doesn't translate into that, then it, 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 that, that would be a shame. Vote, please. So similarly, similarly, much for our lives is not the first movement for gun control. What do you see driving the extensive media coverage that we've seen? Um, I can pretty surely say that the reason that this movement is getting so much traction is because the students who are leading it are white. And I'm going to be frank here. There have been young black activists who have been out on the streets protesting and doing the work for this issue for years and years, and they have been overlooked because of the color of their skin. And as someone who is, uh, I, 
guess, a leader in this movement now. Um, I've tried my best to amplify those voices, to bring light to those issues, to the fact that um, black children are four times more likely to be harmed by a firearm than a white child is, that black children are 14 times more likely to be killed in a homicide than a white child is. And these are issues that need to be dealt with in this conversation. It's not an effective conversation if it's not intersectional. And I think like it's because it's led by a bunch of white students, to be frank. <laughs> I think the, uh, I also looked at, from a research end last semester, uh, from my doctoral program, the whole issue of news framing of school shootings. And there's been some interesting research there. Uh, Michael McCluskey's done some work out at Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee on that, and put a book out uh, last year, 2017, on just the whole issue of news framings. And there are various frames in the news cycle, victim, villain, vindicator, uh, and certainly one of those emerging uh, and expanding themes has certainly been gun control versus gun rights. And after Sandy Hook, what we saw is that after, if you go back to Columbine, a lot of the focus and conversation, while the gun issue was certainly there, it wasn't as prevalent as it was today. But after Sandy Hook, it was, uh, as I've often said, is school safety has been seized on both sides of gun control and gun rights. It's not a political statement, it's an observation of what's going on, to the point where we've really shifted the conversation there, both in the media and in the community, uh, even more so to than best practices in schools, comprehensive approaches to school safety prevention and the other things. So there's sort of a tension that's going on with the gun issue, both sides here, and it is a game. If you talk about gun rights then, or gun control, then we hear the conversation, let's arm teachers. So you have this, this, these extremes, and there hasn't been a lot of com conversation up until just recent weeks and after Parkland on going back to some of the best practices that you can deal with to deal with safety and security in the here and now. And it's been made an either-or debate. It's, it's a, either a gun issue or school safety. It really, as we talked about beforehand, should be both. We need to have reasonable, reasonable balance measures to keep schools safe today, both from a prevention intervention and reasonable security and emergency preparedness in. But we also need to talk about the broader issues uh, at the societal issues at the same time. And it's often pitted in the media and by special interest and advocacy uh, on all sides of things as an either or. It should be an end. Helen, if I can interject here, I first want to thank Kevin for lending his voice to be so blunt, as you put it, to say what you said. You know, as I sit here and as a superintendent of a public school district, my purview is quite different, I'm sure, than our head of schools here at um, um, Osborne. Andrews Osborne. Andrews yeah. Osborne. And I think even back to my 30 years in the public schools and how our purview has been one that has had a different tenor from those in private schools. There have been many non-academic barriers that we've had to deal with. And my heart broke after 2007 when the Cleveland schools had to do the hardware piece and put metal detectors in every school, starting with kindergarten. And my mind went to what kindergartner is supposed to walk up to their first day of school and know that school is a place that you have to enter through metal detectors. But then the other side of that was, what else do you do? But then we started the humanware aspect. So you've got a, a, a paradigm here by which, as a public school in the inner city and in Richmond Heights is an inner ring suburb, we have other issues that we have always had at the forefront that we've always been vocal about. 
But now we see that these issues are, are they're touching all parts of, of our country. Because at the end of the day, we're all human. We bleed red. And whether we have academic issues or non-academic issues, we have poverty issues, or we may have elite issues. Whatever the issues are, we're human. And it's that humanistic point that I, I, I'm going to always drive home. I have a small district, and just last night, I received a text from my principal that received a text from our police department that spoke about an incident in the community. And I thought about how unique this is that just that quick, we know this morning we may have to deal with an issue. And I don't know how you take that to scale in bigger districts or bigger cities, but we were, we were right on top of it. So thank you again for lending your voice to the cause. Dr. Goodman, do you have anything to say in response to the question? <clears throat> Boy, there's so much that was said. I, I suppose I'm sympathetic to, or I, I recognize the, the overlap of uh, the racial issues with school safety, but it seems to me a little bit of a red herring. It wasn't just Cleveland. We had Chardon here in Ohio, <clears throat> entirely white. Columbine was almost entirely white. Sandy Hook was almost entirely white. I think there's something else which is uh, capturing interest. Um, if I were to hazard a guess, the, the political climate has become so adversarial that it's a good news story now to have something on the left to attack the right. So it's actually the drama, less than sincere care about our students, which may be driving this. It doesn't hurt that the spokespeople are photogenic. It doesn't hurt that they are uh, well-spoken. And it is true that your school district and other school districts, public school districts, deal with a host of uh, complicating factors that perhaps we don't in the independent schools, so it would probably surprise you how many of the problems you have that we have as well. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure that race is the reason that this time the, the, the voice is louder. I suspect it has more to do with national drama. Interesting points. Thank you all for answering. Uh, since February, we've seen a desire uh, for an expansion of a teacher's role in the classroom, especially calls to arm them with rocks and guns. What role do you see, if any, for teachers in preventing incidents like Parkland? Um, let's start with uh, Dr. Willis. So again, <clears throat> the rocks, the guns, not the silver bullet, not the magic bullet. Um, knowing your students, knowing their situations, knowing their interactions, knowing who's feeling bullied, who's being bullied, whose parents have gone through trauma, knowing that, the relationship piece. And as a teacher, you know, we go to school, we, we are taught to teach our content, um, we're taught child development, but are we truly taught how to relate, how to empathize how to walk in someone else's shoes or are we so pressured because of accountability measures which again everyone does not have to live up to but right now you know I, I ran in a little late because we're in the midst of state testing and the pressures are real when your evaluations are tied to that when students are vomiting in the middle of testing because if they don't pass they can't go to the fourth grade those pressures are real 
and having that humanistic approach and just knowing that we're in this together will, will be part of a solution, but not the solution. So rocks, guns, I always tell people, give me a gun, I'll probably shoot my own toe off trying to, to pick it up and I've never touched a gun. But that's not what I think teaching should be about. And that's actually happened. Uh, there are some cases where uh, firearms have actually been discharged accidentally uh, where staff were allowed to do that and even school resource officers. We had uh, a few weeks ago over a 24-hour period where there were three accidental discharges from a teacher and out in California to a school resource officer. Um, and, and on the issue of metal detectors, uh, you know, I, I say we need to balance the discussion off metal detectors and look at mental detectors and deal with those social, emotional, mental health issues and supports for students because think about the metal detector. It sounds good, it feels good, it gives a visual that you point to to the cameras and the parents to say that we're doing something. But you would have to run a metal detector 24-7 to be effective. Because if not, I'm just going to come in at 6 or 7 o'clock tonight at the after school where there are basketball practices or drama club or other type of activities, plant what I want to plant in a locker, come in clean through the metal detector tomorrow, and go get what I stashed in the locker and do what I intended to do. So, and you would have to run that 24-7 and, and scan everybody from grandma to, to the superintendent that comes through to really, really do that. And the arming teachers, uh, you know, the issue of, of arming, I was asked by Associated Press for a comment for the superintendent who equipped the schools with a five-gallon bucket of river rocks to throw at gunmen if they come in there. And, and you know, so they said, and he testified to the state legislature in Pennsylvania that, it, that we equip our students with river rocks to throw at the gunman and the gunman will be stoned. And they, they asked me, what do you think? I said, I think the people who created this policy were stoned. I, I said, I said, this, is, I said this, is, this is ridiculous. I said, first of all, we need to go to NASA and have them do a little science experiment about what goes faster, a river rock or a, or a, uh, or, or a, a bullet. But, you know, we can have young people who have suicide suicidal issues. So what happens if a kid stands up in the classroom and pulls out a weapon that could be talked down because of that relationship and kids start throwing stones and rocks that aren't going to, to work or books that aren't going to work anyway. So we need to focus on the fundamentals. We know the number one way we find out about weapons from school is from kids, not from equipment. Uh, kids who come forward that have a trusting relationship and report. We just finished a study that I'll, I'll share here we're going to release. We looked at 143 gun confiscations in schools since the beginning of the school year. I haven't even published this out uh, widespread now, but the number one way that we found, at least from those accounts, from that uh, unscientific uh, study, is descriptive study is the number one way was from kids who reported. And another way was the number 24%, another 19%, or 16% from uh, anonymous reports. Those come from people. Madeline, the question you asked was, what's the role for teachers in this? And I think Dr. Willis's uh, inclination is spot on. Have Remind ourselves what the teachers are there to do, uh, which is not just teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, but to be much more holistic in their work with and assessment of students. I worked with a woman, Joanne Deek, who used to say, and it was a heavy burden for all of us who listened to her to take on, she used to say, every day a teacher gets up and doesn't know if that's the day that he or she is gonna change a student's life. And you may not even know if it happens. With that in mind, we need to remind ourselves 
how much work teachers are asked to do, and when it comes time to paying them, we should pay them appropriately. When it comes time to evaluating them, we should evaluate them differently. When it comes time to negotiating big contracts, frankly, I think we should not. I think we should deal with the teachers, not a big union. I think that would help us uh, empower those teachers who are doing really good work. I think it's a, a much broader discussion than simply uh, should they or should they not be armed. Uh, by the way, of course they shouldn't be armed. That's, that's just idiotic. Kevin, do you have anything to add? Um, I guess uh, I wanted to touch upon a point about um, the side effects of possibly, like let's just take arming teachers as a drug for a disease that we see in the American school system. Um, and with every drug, you're gonna get some side effects, obviously. Um, and if we look at school discipline, that's one of those side effects. The fact that, um, Wait, let's just look in Ohio, for example. Um, the number one reason students are disciplined in Ohio is not fighting, it's not drug use, it's not truancy, it's disobedience or being disruptive, which is over double the next reason students are disciplined, which is fighting. Um, and then if you look at the statistics of who is being disciplined, it's disproportionately students of color. So when you think about adding a firearm to that equation, it becomes fatal for disproportionately students of color. And that is not something I think, it, I think that's something that's constantly overlooked, how this affects already marginalized communities in our country. Um, and it's like the, And not even just like taking it past arming teachers. Um, who knows about the school to prison pipeline? That is only aggravated when you add more law enforcement into schools, when you add more firearms into schools. So this isn't this isn't a um, a one-sided uh, this isn't a one-sided issue. This isn't a um, an easy two plus two equation. This has a lot of different variables that we have to consider, um, especially in our public school systems. And um, even, if you, it's, even if you look at schools in the United States already, it's the inner city schools are the ones that have the metal detectors and the, um, the law enforcement present inside the schools. Um, it goes back to this whole idea that in our country we criminalize the color of people's skins. And I just think that in this conversation, that needs to be close to the forefront even. I would just say on, on law enforcement, uh, just put some context around it, it has to be not just law enforcement. If you look at school resource officer programs, there are many successful school resource officer programs where the officers relate to the kids. We were in doing an assessment in uh, Medina County last week and we did a focus group. We believe something strange. You really, should, if you go in to do an assessment, you should actually talk to kids uh, who, were, who were there. And we asked, you know, there was a discussion about should they have a school resource officer. And just a, a fabulous group of kids who were really right on spot with, with the issue. As I, like, I can talk to my own kids about this. 
stuff and, and get some real sensible answers that sometimes we don't have in adult conversations in our society. And the kids said, we don't mind having an officer and it would make us feel safer as long as that person was approachable. It's approachability. It's relationships and it goes back to there because we know that it was security personnel and having started there in Cleveland schools and with the resource officer, if you have the model properly designed, the triad model where they are counselor, law-related educator, and enforcement, not just all enforcement, as, as you're saying, it's how they're used. And oftentimes what we find, we say, is when you see a case where an officer overstepped and overreacted, in many cases, quite honestly, it's a sign where you've had a weak administration on the education side that's delegated their authority to the officer to do the job that educators should do. So in other words, instead of someone on the education side of the house going to get the kid out of the classroom who's non-compliant and that says certain words and no, I'm not going to go, we send a police officer there. Well, that's misuse of that officer. And it puts him in that position, just exactly what Kevin's saying, to where there's going to be a confrontation. Because if you send a police officer to fill a gap, they're going to fill it. And if nobody, and rather than an educator coming up and saying, come on, I understand you've got some issues, let's go talk. They may know that kid. The officer's going to go, let's go. And the kid's going to, and it's just going to escalate and they're going to go and you're going to have, you know, a situation that shouldn't be criminalized, criminalized. So we can have the programs, have them properly designed, use them properly with the right person as an officer, not a punishment job in the police department where you put them in. It can be done, but you're right. The problem I've seen in recent years with school to prison and elsewhere is that legitimate issues is we haven't designed the programs properly. We don't have the right people in those cases where they make high profile news and we sort of criminalize or, 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 or stigmatize the SRO program. A lot of things that we see is, is how do you actually do it? There are many different things you can do, but are you doing it properly? Many good and interesting points. Um, for our final question, um, I'd like to ask in terms of next steps, uh, what would you each like to see um, and how would you like people's reactions to future incidents uh, be different in the future? Dr. Goodman, we can start with you. Sure, I'd like to see, <clears throat> I'd like to see the schools decide that uh, citizenship is a topic worth developing just as much as uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic is, going from kindergarten through 12th grade, talk about, we had uh, at our school recently a person talking about global citizenship and what struck me was how simple the underlying element was and it was empathy, be a friend to the world. If we could not only look around for the pathology, which I agree is an important component, but let's start teaching the fundamental skills of being good citizens um, and gun control. And by the way, I'd like to require everybody to read the Second Amendment, it won't take long, but then we can actually have an informed discussion about uh, how that works. But uh, some gun control. Um, if you know anything about uh, care for uh, mental illness, I think there's something like 17 beds for pediatric uh, psychology in psychiatry in Cleveland. 17. In other words, if you're a teenager who's suffering from mental illness in Cleveland, you can't go anywhere, probably. I'd like to see us reinvest in uh, the infrastructure that would help us with mental illness, because the people who say it's not guns, it's the person behind the guns, they're not entirely wrong either. 
I'd like to see us do a lot. I would like to um, piggyback on that because it is along the vein that I'm thinking. Um, more training because you mentioned the right person um, as an SRO and as a resource officer. A lot of people could be taught to be the right person. And I believe that there's training and professional development around the global citizenship, around unconscious biases, around um, empathy training. I think that a lot of people can become the right person if we acknowledge our deficiencies, which many of us struggle to do because we don't know what we don't know. But unconscious, unconscious bias is real. And I think to Kevin's point where you know you were really pulling at something Today, in this country, we're dealing with a major situation of that unconscious bias with the Starbucks situation yesterday. And I don't know if people are aware of that, but that is the premier example of where someone's unconscious bias, based on someone's appearance or color of their skin, took them to a different place and the reaction ended up with police and arrests. And I think that that's where I would like to see things going with the training, cultural relevance with teachers, um, pedagogy that's relevant to a student and their circumstance. That's my wish. Um, obviously we have two people who work in schools and one who works for school safety. I've been more on the um, gun reform side of the uh, solution to this issue. So I wanna see some common sense gun reform in this country. Um, including things like universal background checks, which based on recent polling has over 90% of support in this country. Um, I want to see <coughs> obviously more um, funding and resources for mental health because it, if, if we look at who has been committing, um, ma like who has been behind the gun in mass shootings, it is a lot of times people who have dealt with mental health issues in the past. Um, I'd like to see a, an assault weapons ban because if you look at Sandy Hook, if you look at Las Vegas, if you look at um, Parkland, if you look at Pulse in Orlando, those were all carried out with a semi-automatic rifle um, that were designed to kill people. They were not designed to kill a deer in the woods. We have other guns for that. Uh, these guns were designed to kill, and they should, shouldn't be in the hands of civilians. They're designed to kill efficiently and quickly. Yes. Um, and on that point, um, accessories like bump stocks that make killing even easier, um, those have no place in the American population. Um, I know that Governor Kasich, right after um, the shooting in Parkland, released seven policy initiatives that he wants to see implemented in the state of Ohio, um, one of which is that um, the ban on accessories like bump stocks. Another thing is this thing we've been seeing around the country called a red flag law, which says that um, people can petition a court for somebody who poses a risk to other people, like domestic abusers, um, they can have their guns confiscated from them so that they don't hurt other people. All these things would, um, in the context of not even just school safety, just gun violence in general in this country, all these things would um, lead to a decrease in gun deaths all over the place for all sorts of communities around this country. I'd like to see rational political discourse <laughs> and truly bipartisan stuff where people can disagree without it being the politics of personal destruction. Uh, I don't have a lot of hope for that, quite honestly. I think it's going to be a long run. It's going to be in your hands. I will be uh, working many more years now at my age with young children, Lord willing, but uh, I think it really is going to be a long process. And I think while we have that work to that discourse, 
and, and share our passions. I'd also like to see our efforts focused on best practices for school security and emergency planning that's not throwing rocks, not arming teachers, not unrealistically talking metal detectors, but we focus on building cultures uh, where kids feel f comfortable coming forward and reporting that they have someone that they can trust, that you have ways to, to, to provide mental health behavioral emotional supports for kids, that you have data integration where people who all, in all these incidents know about different pieces of the kid but nobody integrates that data and puts it all together until after a crisis that we do a better job of that. And then once you know about it, you have the resources to deal with it. Uh, as Dr. Goodman was saying, what do you do once you identify it? Your average second grade teacher can identify some of the kids who are, uh, have some needs. What do they do with that, both within the school and in the community. Reasonable security measures um, and uh, just having some balanced, comprehensive focus on, on best practices. And I just say, I'd also like everybody in this room to know that the vast majority of us here and around the country will never have a school shooting in our schools. There are many issues while we focus on that one thread of school shooting because of the media framing and conversation. We could have also sat here today and talked much more in depth about bullying, relationship issues, aggressive behaviors, fights, some communities, gang issues. There are many other threats, non-custodial parents coming to take kids out of elementary schools. Uh, we need to make sure we look at school safety comprehensively, both in the threats and in the solutions. Uh, I uh, just want to add, um, and going forward, I also want to see more young people voting. Because um, <laughs> at the end of the day, um, if we have uh, an Ohio legislature or United States Congress that doesn't want to act on gun issues, then they're not going to act on gun issues. So as an electorate, it's our job to hold them accountable. It's our job to go into the ballots every election. It will only take year. one election if the people who are being counted on to not vote, turn out, enforce, and vote, you will break the back of the NRA's lobbying. Mm -hmm. One election cycle will do it. I would also uh, say that um, I remember I actually had a mom come up to me at a, um, an event I was at a couple weeks ago um, and asked, how can we adults support you kids in your fight? Um, and one of the things that I told her was, I'm only 17. So I can't vote this November, no matter how much I want to. Um, but Chicago. <laughs> but I told my, um, I told this mother that when you go to vote in November, you have to be voting for the people who don't have the right to vote. You can't just be voting for yourself. You have to vote for every child who is, who doesn't isn't afforded the right to vote. You have to vote for every person who's been disenfranchised by the system, um, because her decision isn't just going to affect her, it's going to affect her children, it's going to affect children all over this country, it's going to affect other people who aren't children but are also in this country. Um, so for, to the adults in the room, I guess, because it's not just students in here, when you go to vote in November, uh, vote for me. Not for me. <laughs> Be thinking about me when not you vote. Not for you, but definitely not for him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Good you afternoon. all. Go ahead. Good afternoon, my name is Bishop Walton, a senior and member of Youth Forum Council. Today we are enjoying a Youth Forum panel discussing school safety in the United States in our, in our community. Dr. Goodman, head of school at Andrews Osborne Academy, Kevin LaMonica, Cleveland student organizer for March for Our Lives, Kenneth Trump, president of the National School Safety and Security Services, and Dr. Renee Willis, superintendent of Richmond Heights Local School District. Our moderator is Youth Forum member Madeline Conley. We're about to begin audience Q&A. 
We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of us joining via our webcast. If you are joining us via our webcast, we would like to, and you would like to ask a question, tweet it to at City Club Youth, and we'll ask the, the question as time allows. We ask that your questions be brief, to the point, and actual questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand, and our microphone holders will come to you. Holding our microphones today are Youth Forum Council members Louis Yee and Natalie Sapula. May we have the first question, please? Um, hello. So how do you all go about um, informing someone who doesn't see a need in changing gun control laws or changing gun laws or um, someone who doesn't believe um, that someone, the color of someone's skin is criminalized and that there is a certain um, institutional um, racism and discrimina discrimination when you have guns? One of the best pieces of advice that I ever got was to meet people where you agree. If you want to, as I understand your question, you're trying to get somebody who doesn't think this needs to be addressed to address it. You can't start by articulating what they don't believe in. You have to start with the common ground. We care about people. You want what's best for the next generation. Start with the things you agree in and win and listen to the other side of, of the uh, argument. Maybe you'll learn something. Model for them that you're willing to amend your position as you listen to them and make sure that you challenge them in ways that are not too hard, but don't let them off the hook. I, I think the other issue that piggybacks on, on that is exposure to different opinions, different perspectives, different races. You're looking at the Irish-German guy who married into a Puerto Rican family for 21 years. You're constantly discussing these issues and, and seeing how people look at things differently. And even through being a part of the family uh, oh, for 20-some years, you're still seeing how different things have different meaning to different people. And that's through exposure. The same thing from a political end. We can agree to disagree. It doesn't mean... We need to take each other out by the, the throat as well. So I think exposure, both in terms of different races, different nationalities, and different political views in a non-threatening way. I think the good news is we can do that better in this room than we seem to be doing in the state houses and in the congressional houses. Uh, so let's just remember that uh, contrary to what you see on, on cable and network, uh, that's not the only place where discourse goes. This, it's down here at the ground level. Um, day to day that you, you really can make a difference and it's small wins over time. Uh, somebody once told me that we always, um, one of the biggest problems in, that we have nowadays is that we all listen to reply, we don't listen to understand. Um, and I think that one of the biggest shutdowns for someone who's having a, a difficult conversation is that they don't think they're being heard um, they think that you're, you're not, I think that when we go into conversations, you need to A, go in with the mindset that you're not going to change their mind, and two, that you, know, you need to go in with a genuine desire to understand where they are coming from, because the fact of the matter is we live in a country of about 340 million people, and that's 340 million different opinions. Um, and 
Oh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, so, and oh, and everybody, um, and all 340 million of those people are going to have different life experiences, different perspectives on the world, different worldviews, um, and all those things are going to contribute to their own views on a particular issue. So going in with a genuine desire to understand why they think some way is, I think, a critical um, aspect to having a productive conversation. And Madeline, finally, I would say to that question, I agree totally with the three gentlemen and their um, stance that having the conversation, I come from the position that I've got to make advocates to even get to the table to have the conversation. So that is strategy because you need advocates, you need people that can help you get to the places that matter to have the critical conversations. And I agree that the conversations on the ground are important, but policy and change making is done at a different table. So value I, added. I would also say uh, get comfortable with being uncomfortable um, um, I, because um, productive conversations, 9.9 time, 9 .9 times out of 10 are going to be uncomfortable conversations. Um, and you kind of just have to prepare yourself for that because um, nothing comes out of a comfortable conversation. Good afternoon. Um, I have experience as a 31-year teacher in the Cleveland School District. And what I notice in education is things become flavor of the month. So flavor of the month, flavor of the day, flavor of the moment is um, arming teachers, bringing in resource officers. My question is, how can we respond to what has happened in Parkland at the ground level at what I call 15 minutes before creation so that we make sure we have the right people in place and we don't just have people who just show up because this is a job um, we're reacting to what has happened. We're having policies or suggestions made by people like the president, the head of the education department who have not taught in school, who have not been in school. How can we implement the things that the four of you said you want to see in a way that it actually helps the situation and not five years down the road we say, well, we hired the wrong company, we hired the wrong people, and we still have dead children and dead teachers. I can just say that it's, it's 30 years of dealing with this. We're a roller coaster society, roller coaster public opinion, public policy, and public funding. And it's exactly what, what you described. It's, you know, the, the question isn't whether we're having this conversation, you know, six weeks after Parkland. The question is six months from now or six years from now, short of another Parkland, would we still be having the same conversation? And the pr answer is probably not. And, and that's in school communities. and, and in uh, neighborhoods. My dissertation focuses that I'm working on now is on school administrator leadership on school safety issues in highly ambiguous and uncertain contexts like we're dealing with now. And uh, how do you communicate? Uh, risk communications, crisis communications without overreacting. And there, it, school safety is a political issue. Nobody really wants to say that. I can, I can say it because I work for myself and I can't be fired. Um, I have to work for the rest of my life, but that's another story. It's a political issue, and it's exactly what you're describing. This, you have to look at this as a political context, and when we work with schools, uh, when we're brought in, to it's oftentimes I'm looking at how do you do the right thing and best practices and not overreact and still help the superintendent and the board navigate the school community politics, as I call it, mm -hmm. political tricks. Um, and, and it's not easy because uh, we could talk for hours and I won't, but, uh, but there's a whole lot of, of dynamics going on, political, sociological, 
face-saving uh, image uh, maintenance denial, um, and how do you manage that? And I wish I had a quick answer because I'm, I'm actually working on that dissertation that didn't exist because you're right, there's not a lot of that in, in PhD and EDD programs. Um, and it, it's, it's not going, there's no quick answer to that. It's, we have to focus on school safety is a leadership issue. And sometimes leadership means telling people what they don't want to hear or, say, or uh, not making those knee-jerk reactions. I, I agree. Um, in everything, there's a, a flavor of the month, whether it's around the safety topic or whether it's around academic achievement. You know, we can debate the new math, we can debate phonics, whole language. There's always something that takes dominance during a period of time. Um, I guess the key is mobilization and how do you get a widespread massive movement instead of a moment. And I think we saw that in the 2008 election. I'm hoping that with the students like Kevin that we can see this around safety. Um, so maximizing the moment and making it a movement is what I would, would see as possibly a solution. Mm. Um, definitely, uh, I completely 100% agree. It's not a movement, it's not a moment, it's a movement. Um, you gotta keep the political pressure up in terms of common sense gun reform um, in this country um, because something that um, elected officials do, something that the National Rifle Association does is they kind of take a step back and they get quiet right after something like this happens and they wait for the, the conversation to die down before they come back, they, they take their step forward again. Um, so keeping this conversation alive until we get the change I think is so, so important. Um, and also in terms of school safety, I think um, it is critical that students are a part of that conversation. Um, if I ever saw a, a meeting um, about school safety um, that was a room full of adults, I'd say you're doing something wrong. Because at the end of the day, school safety measures are directly impacting students every single day. So I think that while, while students don't have all the answers, well, I don't think anybody actually has all the answers, but um, I think every voice matters. Every voice um, brings something different to the table. Um, and in terms of school safety, how it affects the students should be the number one thing on your mind, especially since that schools are for the students before all else. My question is for Kevin. Um, what was your drive for the movement? Like, uh, what motivated you to keep going? Um, I can tell you right now that after the Parkland shooting happened, um, I did a lot of crying. <laughs> um, it kind of hit me a little harder than the last ones, than the previous school shootings and mass shootings did, because those kids that were killed in Parkland were my age. Um, and that kind of was a reckoning for me in a way. Um, I've always been passionate about this issue, um, but that was more of a wake up, uh, not a wake up call, but a call to action for me in a sense that like I um, was sick of seeing children dying. Um, I, I, I keep saying to people, I don't understand how 27 year olds wasn't enough, um, but I, I was sick of seeing kids dead in their, um, 
in their classrooms. And I also, um, this was actually the first question you asked and I just thought about this. I think that something that made this particular mass shooting different is because these were high school students who, like I remember I watched a video of a girl in a classroom with her friend dead on the floor and then she had to run out and pass by bodies on the floor. And that's, like videos from inside the school is something that we didn't see in Sandy Hook. It's something we didn't really see in Columbine. Um, and that was something that when I saw that, um, it made me sick to my stomach even. And I remember I actually had friends who were like, well, this shouldn't be on the internet. There are small children who are going to see this. And I'm like, no, they need to see this. They need to see what is happening. Because who's to say it's not going to be your school tomorrow? And um, so and in terms of um, what motivated me, it was, it was that frustration and that anger that I felt with um, the fact that the people who we give the power to actually make change, they don't, do the, they don't implement the change that is necessary to protect lives every single day. First of all, I want to thank all of you for, for participating in this very important panel. Um, uh, Kevin, I, I just want to thank you for uh, raising up the importance of, of uh, the movement and people of color and how they have been disenfranchised. Um, how, are you a member of SCORE? I am. Okay, I could, I could <laughs> I'm tell. I'm a SCORE leader. I could tell. I love <laughs> it. Um, Help, help young people. You know, it's really interesting. We want to be comfortable with our own race. Can you please talk about how do you reach out to another race and why is that important as far as socializing and, and strategizing and all of that? Um, how, do you, how do you do that? Um, oh, first, I would just want to uh, clarify to everyone that SCORE um, is a student organization at Shaker Heights High School called the Student Group on Race Relations. Um, and what we do is we go into fourth, sixth, and middle school classrooms and engage um, those younger students on issues pertaining to race and other social issues in that uh, plague our country, including issues with disability and um, gender issues and sexuality and gender identity. Um, and um, in terms of having, I think that having conversations about things like race um, are so important. Like, I feel very fortunate to go to a public school. Um, I believe now Shaker is 55% black. Um, and I know that for me, as a white student, I feel that my education is so much more enriching because of the diversity that I see in the classrooms at Shaker um, and the conversations I have with those people. Because, like I said before, everybody comes from a different place. Um, everybody has a different worldview. Um, and that makes my education so much more enriching. Um, and I, one thing that I always do in SCORE is I say that the first step to tangible change is a conversation. Um, and so through, and, and having, and I, I'm assuming everyone in this room knows that there are so many racial issues in this country um, that range from police brutality to voter disenfranchisement to um, issues with the criminal justice system in schools to drug policy. Um, engaging people in those conversations, making, people, having, making sure people are informed on those issues is a very key first step to getting that tangible change, to getting that institutional change. Um, because racism manifests itself not only on an institutional level, but in a societal level, and a personal level even. All right. 
Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Justin Tinker, and I serve as vice chair of the Youth Forum Council. Um, like Tiolo, it's hard to believe that, that this is the end of this year's season. And with that, I have a couple of thank yous. I, of course, want to thank all of our panelists for, for coming to today's forum, um, some of them making adjustments on a moment's notice. I want to thank all of you guys for attending and being part of this conversation. You know, that's a lot of the work that, that we do here, not only uh, around uh, gun control and, and school safety, but also on a wide variety of, of, of issues that, that we look at throughout the year. Um, so, to, so to all the, the underclassmen, the juniors, the, the sophomores, and, and the freshmen, I want to encourage you to consider joining, joining the Forum Council um, next year and lending your voice to these types of conversations and uh, helping make sure that, that these types of discussions and this type of change uh, continues because discussion matters and, and, and your voice matters and we need to make sure that that keeps happening. And so with that, we've reached the close of today's forum. Um, I want to thank Dr. Goodman, uh, Ms. LaMonica, Mr. Trump, and Dr. Willis, as well as Maddie for, for moderating. I want to thank everyone for attending. And this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.